Today's episode is brought to you by me. Still mostly just brought to you by me. However, my friends over at DefiantBean.com are trying to help out too, but they can't do it alone. Defiant Bean Roasters take responsibly sourced quality coffee beans, lovingly and caringly roast them, sometimes while listening to the Enormacast apparently. Then they put them in a bag, still warm, in a box, and send them to you. So fresh, the beans think they're on a little vacation, right up until they hear the grinder fire up. But anyway, DefiantBean.com is offering Enormacast listeners a deal. 10% off any order, and we, the royal we over here at the Enormacast, get 10% as well. That's DefiantBean.com. Enter Enormo in the coupon code at checkout and get 10% off. Great coffee. Or head over to Enormacast.com. Click on the Defiant Bean banner for details. Be defiant. Demand fresh roasted coffee. All right, on to the show. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Hello and welcome to the Normacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. This is episode 13, a conversation with Cedar Wright. It is, uh, what, what day is it? It is June 14th, about 8 o'clock or so Mountain Standard Time, coming to you from the home studio in Carbondale, Colorado. Before we get to the show, I've got some business to take care of, some announcements to make. Uh, first and foremost, we've hit 20,000 downloads here at the Normacast. And of course, as usual, I mean the Royal We. But I couldn't have done it without you guys. I really appreciate everybody who's been listening. I appreciate all the feedback I've been getting. I really appreciate those folks who have offered to help out. I've got some people doing some design work for me. Hopefully, Eventually, someday, I will be uh, finished with a logo and some stickers and such. I'd also like to send a heartfelt thank you to all of you who have donated. The money is sitting in my PayPal account. Uh, It is being prepared for something important like buying some merchandise. Uh, Some folks have been bugging me about t-shirts. That's a really good idea. I am working on it, I swear. And you will all be the first to know. And then you can snatch them up. Then you'll be just like me with my Van Halen 1984 t-shirt on, tromping around the halls in middle school, thinking I was the coolest dude on the planet, because I actually was for that brief moment. Oh man, I wish I still had that t-shirt. I am going to be doing some traveling with the show this summer, and the first thing I'm up to is heading up to the International Climbers Festival in Lander, Wyoming. That starts on the, uh, hold on. Let me look at my Builder Babes calendar. Oh, hello, Miss July. Little preview. Um, oh, yeah. Starts on the 11th. Goes through the 15th. 11th of July to the 15th of July. I'm going to be hitting the uh, opening party for sure on the 12th. Actually, I'm in training this year to dominate, completely dominate the pull-up contest. So you want to come and check that out. And none of those cheater pull-ups. 
one of those ones where you kind of come halfway down and then leap back up over the bar. Real pull-ups. Serious pull-ups. The opening party is hosted by the Lander Bar, which is also hosting many events at the festival. And this is one of the great climber watering holes owned and operated by a climber and definitely very welcoming to uh, dirtbag climbers who are coming out of the hills. It's also a bar where climbers and cowboys can hang out without one of the cowboys pushing you up against the wall because you beat them at pool or because you're just hanging out and having a good time with the guys that work at the plywood factory. Or you just happen to be chatting about the weather or something else with one of the handful of eligible women in the whole frickin' town. How did you know Chippy Shit Kicker was going to get all pissed off about it? That won't happen at the Lander Bar. That only happens in Hewlett, Wyoming, when you are climbing at Devil's Tower. Just let me tell you, that's what happens in Hewlett, Wyoming, to some people. Well, specifically, it happened to me, actually, but it won't happen to anybody in the Lander Bar. So come on up, check out the festival, 11th through the 15th. I'm going to be there. Kate Rutherford's going to be there. Kevin Jorgensen's going to be there. And some guy uh, named Royal Robbins. I don't know. Never heard of him. More information at climbersfestival.org. Also, if you're there for the fest or if you're just up there climbing this summer, stop in a lander bar. Tell them that the uh, normal cast sent you. That won't get you anything but a stupid look, but do it anyway. All right, on to the show. Today's show, I sit down with Cedar Wright, who is a professional athlete. He's also a witness to what I think was an important era in Yosemite. It was the era that uh, started in the late 90s with a bunch of speed climbing and kind of culminated with a very big revolution of free climbing on El Cap. El Capitan had been free climbed by Paul Piana, Todd Skinner, Lynn Hill. But the doors got really blown off in the late 90s, early aughts. And Cedar was there, and he also contributed his own part to that revolution. It's a surprisingly uh, low-key and heartfelt conversation from a guy who's known a little bit for his irreverence, a little bit for his caustic humor. By the way, the music that you're hearing right now was created by Cedar can be found at his SoundCloud page under Cedar Wright. So go check that out. I'm going to let it linger a little longer than usual just so we can all get in the mood. Nice, yeah, yeah, let's see, yeah, that's important. Okay, welcome to the Normal Cast. Uh, we're sitting in the mobile studio in Rifle, Colorado, um, in the campground, and my guest is Cedar Wright. Hey, hey Cedar, how's it going? How's it going? Good. Psyched to be here, psyched to be part of the Normal Cast. And the, what do you think of the mobile studio? I mean, it's it's the height of, it's high tech, and it's, uh, I'd call it baller in here. <laughs> it's uh, baller for the 70s, you know? Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I want to remind you, I have the virtual tour on the uh, on the website. If anybody wants to go and hang out in the, it's almost like you're there. When you check out the photos. It's pretty cool. Um, I invited Cedar into uh, the mobile studio because he happened to be climbing here in Rifle. You're living in Boulder now, right? Yeah, yeah. I made the move from California to Boulder. Why? Yeah. In the end, there's just not a great city for climbers to live in in California. I mean, there's some good ones, mm-hmm. but uh, that you know, I, it was just the right mix of community and accessibility to climbing. Right. And then, of course, you know, I, I met a I met a girl uh-huh. uh, when I came to visit. That's the real reason. Is she is she from Boulder or she was living in Boulder? She was living in Boulder, working in Boulder, nice. and so she's got a real job. Right on. You got so all married up. I got married. How long yeah. ago? Uh, like uh, about two and a half weeks ago. So yeah. That's it. Yeah, maybe three weeks. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. I'm newly Dude, married. I thought you've been married for a while. No, uh, no, no. Well, congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. thought it'd been like months, at no. least, or, or last year or something. No, I'm settling into it. It's good though. It's like for us. I mean, we we bought a, a little townhome together mm-hmm. in Boulder, so that was you know a little more, probably more committing than actually getting married. Truthfully. How long ago was that? Uh, like we've been yeah, about had a townhome for about a year in Boulder. Okay, so. may- maybe that's what I was thinking that you guys were already like hooked up by that we're committed well that's committed. cool i gotta ask sorry ladies yeah. out there to <laughs> a, bunch your- of, a bunch of people just tuned out <laughs> yeah, ladies, like i'll oh, forget this. i don't know how you convinced her to do that but good for you yeah no i think you know lock it down before she realizes what a terrible mistake she made that's, that's uh awesome. that's my strategy. so i don't really I, i've known you i think we've just figured it out maybe about five or six years uh maybe meeting out in indian creek yeah in moab yeah probably like through uh, lisa hathaway i think it's through lisa and, and micah and, and that crew out there exactly so how long have you been climbing Oh, gosh. Well, I started climbing when I was 21, actually. So pretty late, especially wow. for someone who's uh, you know, a professional How old climber. are you? I'm 37 now. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. I'll do the math. Minus, minus, minus. Yeah, how many 16 years? years. Okay, 16 years. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Thanks. Now no I know. Yeah. Yeah, I've been climbing for a while now, and uh, I still I love it. You know, I, I, I really do just love the whole lifestyle and the, and the sport of climbing and all its forms. Mm-hmm. So it definitely gave my life structure and kind of saved my life, honestly. I was kind of a... I was pretty lost. I was a lost soul before climbing, so I'm thankful. Right on. Definitely. So where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in the foothills of the Sierras in Toll House, California. Uh-huh. Don't make the cookies there. Just so you, <laughs> just so you know. That's usually the first question, so I just like to nip that one in the bud. But uh, yeah, I grew up in Toll House, and uh, parents were hippies. I was conceived in a school bus. Nice. Yeah. So, and that's, you know, that's how I ended up with the name of Cedar. My sister's name is Willow. Uh huh. So yeah, we kind of got the the groovy hippie name. Do you have a crazy middle name? No, I don't have a middle name. Oh right, it's yeah, just Cedar. Yeah, yeah. They right had on. to be original in every way they could be. Cool. Yeah, and so uh, I grew up in California. Did not discover uh, climbing until I uh, started going to school up in Humboldt State. Okay. Yeah, that's where I saw some guys climbing on uh, Moonstone Beach, and I was like, man, that looks amazing. And I met this guy who I'd heard was a climber, and I was like, dude. Please, anything, just take me climbing. You know, I gotta try that. Try that. You know, I've gotta try that out. He was nice enough to take me out there, and the first thing he showed me was this super low angle slab, and he let me borrow his shoes, and he said, "Climb up it with no hands." And so my first real climbing was a no hands boulder problem. Old school. Yeah, yeah. I learned on real rock. I, there uh-huh. wasn't really GMs weren't really popular. Just starting to be a, a phenomenon when sure, I got to climbing. Sure, and that and somewhere up up northern California, probably there was. Yeah. yeah, not much going on with that. Not much. So yeah, you're you're kind of. I mean, I always talk about myself as being sort of on the end of 
the pre-gym era and the go out and find some mentor, some person to teach you how to climbing, you know, or how to climb. Um, but you're just a couple years younger than me. So yeah, that's the same era. Yeah. I'm in that, I'm in that era. I didn't learn in the gym. Um, I didn't climb in the gym until at least like probably four years into it. Right. Yeah. And I, I just had a couple of really great mentors, especially, uh, Sean Leary or Stanley, who actually ho- holds the uh, record on the nose right now. And he kind of, I went to the sandbag school of climbing, you know, right. he taught me about like soloing, like I think in my first year of climbing, uh-huh. like, he was dragging me up these five, eight solos and stuff. And I was dead pointing for holds up there and stuff. And, really? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty sketchy <laughs> in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it was, mm. it was crazy times. We survived though. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you're soloing as like a beginner climber. Yeah. All yeah, right. Yeah. Well so, done. Yeah, no, I And you seem like you're like this is just normal. Well, I thought that's what was normal because right, right. that's you know he was he was my teacher. He uh-huh. was uh, yeah, he was a big sandbagger. So you're learning to climb up up in in Northern California, and then you start going to Yosemite pretty soon after that, or yeah. Well, so I think my first climbing trip was to Joshua Tree right. actually. And it was with Sean. And then, you know, Sean, Sean was like, he was the experienced climber. And he, I, I remember when I first met him, he had just come back from Yosemite and had just done Astro Man, you know, and I was like, oh my God. Wow. You know? I was like, you're a God, pretty right. much. You climbed Astro Man. You know, I was pretty just like kind of blown away by how badass he was. And he told me these tales of living in Yosemite and how, you know, he was, he came with a hundred bucks and stayed for like three months mm-hmm. and got to do all these amazing climbs and how there are all these characters just like, hanging out in the valley all the time, living in caves and climbing full time. And I was like, I, it was really romanticized or almost like, it was almost became mythical in my mind. I was mm-hmm. like, there's this place in Yosemite where you can go and live on next to nothing and climb all the time. And at that point I was obsessed. I was like, you know, I don't think I want a job. I think I want to just whatever, get some little, little, like little jobs and just, you know, try to, try to make it work, try to be a full-time climber. And so this was, what, a few years after you started climbing or right away? Uh, I'd say, two, well, I mean, it was two years later because I graduated right. two years later. Did you so graduate as? I got I got my uh, bachelor's in English with a minor in creative writing. Oh, so, right on. Yeah. I got a bachelor's in English. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like, yeah, it's one of the more worthless uh, degrees yeah, you can get. Yeah, the best thing you can do with, <laughs> yeah. in terms of, of, uh, of uh, earning potential. No. I put it to use. I ended up, you know, doing some writing for some of the climbing periodicals later on. And, uh-huh. But for a while there, well, my first job uh, after I graduated was shoveling snow. It was actually kind of a low point for us, <laughs> just shoveling snow and, and just suffering. And I saved up some cash, and then I went to Joshua Tree, and I you know spent the winter. And then I, I showed up in the valley in the spring with a buddy of mine, Coiler, who's quite the character. So uh, let's get back to that. But what, yeah. what, about what year was this? Maybe 96, 95, uh-huh. something like that. Right, okay. I'm like really bad with dates and and stuff. Like sometimes I'll be like, "Oh, that was two years ago," and then, then someone will be like, "No, that was seven years yeah. ago." And I'll be like, "Oh, yeah." So let's go back to Coiler. What's that dude's real name? Uh, Brian K. Right, the Coiler. Right, 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 right. The Coiler. Or the yeah, or he had the other nicknames like one of them being Captain Morgan because because uh, <laughs> he liked imagine. to. Yeah, I can only imagine why I got that right. nickname and the Hobbit because he actually lived in a cave for quite a long time and. He was like one of the original. He actually kind of created the whole. I don't know if you're familiar with it, the rock monkey, right? Kind of thing. He popularized that with a lot of us, and he was the one who kind of popularized the uh, the ape call, the ooh, ooh, right, right, ooh. right. That's like the you know rock monkey ape call that a lot of us kind of. That's you know we'd be like if you're looking for your buddy in the boulders, that became like the way to find them, right? Give yeah, the ape call because you guys are hiding out. Yeah, hiding out, or sure. you know, just having good times up in yeah. the boulders, like climbers are prone to do. So that does it puts you guys there about ninety five, ninety six because. I remember that dude. 
Yeah. And I, I, ve- I think I remember you as well. And I was never like a denizen of, of Yosemite. I, I lived in Southern California. I lived in LA. And so I would come do my thing, climb a wall, you know, maybe have a day or two in front, a day or two behind. And then I'd split. But I ended up sort of interacting and meeting a lot of these guys because, you know, I was, I was climbing well enough to kind of be on the radar with yeah. the locals. You were doing a lot of hard walls at the time, actually. Uh, yeah. And, and so it was like, you know, I found out kind of later that, yeah, I was sort of on the radar and, and some people were like cool with it and other people thought I was some sort of interloper that was, you know, coming in and I don't know, a carpet bagger, you know, from outside the valley doing some of these walls. But, but, and then I, I was friends with some of the guys like Kevin Thaw and, you know, that had cachet with the crew. But then I stopped climbing there pretty much in 96, I think, or maybe it was 97 that I did my last wall and split. Which seems to be about the era that you you started hanging out. That's there. when I started to hang tough, pretty right, much, right? And started to meet like a lot of the characters in the valley who were there mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think, I think I showed up at a good time. Um, Absolutely, I yeah. think it was like I think there was kind of almost maybe like when you were there. I'm like I can even imagine probably maybe there's a lot of dudes talking trash and like who's this guy like showing up and doing these walls. And, well, I have one name for you. Mr. Way. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that guy stuck around and continued to be a total pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I shouldn't get into that. Too no, much. we don't want to get into it too yeah, much. But yeah, he was, he was sort of a little, little vortex of negativity that um, I kept running into. But I mean, there was this transitional, a bunch of characters were there still. Uh, Walt Shipley was still there, Tucker Tech, you know, sort of this like crossover. But, you know, I would show up and it just didn't have a great feel to it it for me and and again not i mean i thought walt was great and but there was just this general feeling of kind of malaise if you will like yeah people were repeating walls and that was still kind of the focus and but it just felt like i I never liked to be there for very long because it just it didn't feel all that welcoming to me in a lot of ways it was like as close to kind of surfing as it as it got maybe rifle in the early years was sort of like that too, but you felt kind of like an intruder and not necessarily really openly welcomed. People were looking for reasons to diss you rather than looking for reasons to kind of find sort of inspiration in what you're doing. You know, if you climb this wall, repeated some hard route, they'd be like, okay, well, they'd accuse you of drilling hooks. Yeah, or they, like, oh, yeah, like, you, or how many days you do it in. Right, or like, yeah. Oh, so blah, blah. yeah so I like, split, not thinking it was the greatest place in the world. But then I returned almost exactly 10 years later to climb the free rider, and it was like I found this whole new place. Yeah. The SAR team, everybody seemed psyched, and everybody seemed like they were climbing all the time, because that was one of the things, and a lot of people have commented on this over the years that you go to Yosemite and it, there was not a lot of people actually climbing, like a lot of hanging out. Yeah. But then I returned and I, and, and it was kind of like you guys had revolutionized this sort of, sort of sense of like, we're going to get after it. Do you no, know what I mean? Was. I mean, can you comment on that? Yeah, no, I can't. I, you know, I think there was like a little bit of an energy shift. Well, for one thing, there was a shift of, of focus from aid climbing to free climbing. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a big part of it. Uh, you know, it's like, not that I, you know, I, I, you know, I came kind of in between that, right? So 
I came like and it was all about like kind of speed climbing right. at the start and about like breaking records and sure. I got in on that mm-hmm. a little bit and you know got like I broke the record on the shield and that was one of the first rad things I did that helped me to get recognized mm-hmm. and you know later get some sponsors and stuff but well I remember Sean was really involved in that yeah yeah, yeah. And, and Stanley and, and a lot of other folks and Dean Potter um, mm-hmm. Timmy O'Neill Miles Smart a lot of folks were you know pushing that speed climbing thing so when I first showed up that was going on and that was Maybe a little more of an athletic feat, you know, and so it just took a little maybe more of a, of a you know, it had to be a little more serious. You couldn't just be like just drinking a six pack of old E that night and then getting up and going for it like you could be with a hard wall maybe. You well, know? it was almost as if it was a matter of pride that you could do a big wall, a long, hard aid route, and you could be drunk the whole time. Yeah. It was almost cooler if, if you did that than if you'd done it sober. And yeah. it was sort of this badge of honor that, okay, we did a Zenyatta Mandata and we brought four cases of beer. Yeah. Which was better than if you'd done it without the four cases. You, you'd the, one-upped everybody. The party style. And, you know, the speed climbing in a lot of ways, I think it's connected to that free climbing because I always feel like their barriers have to be broken. Yeah. And the idea of doing the shield in a push in in its own little way was like kind of blew some minds yeah it was a paradigm shift there was a total paradigm shift a big paradigm shift in the valley it was like okay what else is possible and then naturally well what if we try to free climb these things yeah and not to say that they hadn't been free climbed because by that time lynn had done the nose yeah and todd and paul had freed the south but then it kind of like died out and it also was kind of mythologized a little bit like almost like that was just like an impossibly hard thing that you know only lynn hill could do yeah only lynn hill could ever free climb the nose you know which turned out to be almost kind of true for a long time with that particular route but but so many other things got done before the nose got freed again exactly so all right so back to what you guys are doing you guys are doing these speed ascents because that was happening when i was still there yeah you know and i was the guy over there like multi-day and then even the reticent wall which was supposedly the hardest wall gets done in like 35 hours or whatever yeah no that that just like everybody's like okay game over not everybody i was like that's when i made the thing of saying okay game over whatever we thought we were doing up there you were vertical camping. Yeah, it wasn't that really dangerous vertical camping. <laughs> yeah, but if it can be done, you know, the hardest route on El Cap, supposedly at the time, hardest aid route, yeah. can be done in thirty-five or thirty-six hour push. Why yeah. were we up there for seven days? And there's nuances to that too. You know, that's like ten ascents later, and of course the route gets easier. Still, there's nuances, but it's still, just, it's just like a. It is. It's a paradigm shift. It's a. So it's like, also a bit of deflating, maybe, for all those wall climbers. At the same time, it's a little disappointing because I think there is an art form to wall climbing, and you know, it's something. It, and now, almost, it's like kind of shifted the other way. To now, you go to the valley, and it's like, you know, there's 25 dudes on the free rider trying to right. send the free rider, and there's, you know, and there's like a bunch of people trying to do the nose, and then every other route, pretty much in El Cap, is empty. Right. And there's hardly anybody pushing the hard aid anymore, which is its own unique art form to be appreciated yeah, no, it'll but come back the 80s yeah, will. will come back the 80s will be back yeah exactly <laughs> totally. yeah everybody will be like doing blow on the friggin ledges up there <laughs> and like, like drinking, <laughs> drinking 12 packs <laughs> at the ledge and yeah, be full so circle. you guys again so now mm-hmm. you're you're set up in a lot of ways to make this next shift yeah and then the hubers show up yeah the hubers the hubers were a big part of it i definitely have to give them props well they, they really you know i mean you know same that lynn and uh 
Todd had done, but I guess maybe the difference was there they were with us. They were hanging out. They were really just kind of like, they were just part of the crew. Right. Know, of monkeys. Not like these superstar climbers that showed yeah. up. Yeah. And... They were superstars, but they were just dudes. Right. And they were really, actually really cool guys. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, Alex was a total character. He, you know, he pranced around in his leather pants and mm-hmm. had this very, like, Bavarian bravado thing, but he was a nice guy. And he was, they were both very forthcoming about, like, what their, you know, the techniques they were using and, you know, and we're happy to give you beta and, you know, and they, they unlocked the free rider, which was a big deal, I think, for a lot of people because it's like a slowly but surely El Cap became this free climbable thing for mortals. Right. Cause the, I mean, the free riders around 12 plus and when I did it, my buddy Rob from Crested Butte, it was kind of like, we knew that we, to a certain extent, were just normal dudes. Yeah. And what I realized about that route is not only is it doable for kind of good climbers, but not superstar climbers, but you can actually free all but a couple moves on it as a 5'11 climber. Yeah. No, so, yeah, that that was a big, you know, kind of thing to say, it was, right, here we go. It was there all this time, right? Yeah. It could have been it could have been done much earlier, but it took the Hubers to have that vision to find the way. And, and also, you know, it requires, like, for the mortal climber, you're probably going to have to use some different types of mm-hmm. tactics, like mm-hmm. possibly fixing lines from the top to preview pitches, mm-hmm. you know, maybe rappelling in and fixing, you know, cash. There's all kinds of different tactics that, that the Hubers kind of, like, in, not, maybe not pioneered, but popularized. And then we all kind of saw that happening, you know, and we saw them like really working hard to find the way to, you know, to really look at all the possibilities to find the free climbable way. And I, I got inspired by that and started trying to find my own free lines over on the Sentinel. And so during that time when, uh, when Alex and, and, and Tomas were over on El Cap, I was over on the Sentinel getting my own little piece of the pie. And mm-hmm. I owe it to those guys that they, they had that, that vision. And well, it's interesting because you use the word work. Like they're putting the work in. Yeah. And in a lot of ways too, I think you get this outside mindset that they come in and, you know, because Yosemite is this great bastion of, of ethics ground up and all this stuff still lingers there. Totally. So these guys come from Europe and they're just like, no, 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 we're going to do previewing and we're going to do, I mean, all these things that 10 years ago would have gotten you slagged off. Yeah. Hardcore because- the, I mean, maybe the force of personality, and like you said, that they were they weren't just like these guys that were coming in and staying at the Iwani and like going into it, but they were in the dirt with you guys. Yeah, it's like okay, cool. These guys are doing it. They're our bros. Yeah, let's let's allow this to happen. It's almost like the ethics had closed that door so tightly. Yeah, there was a slander period, especially with the with the Hubers. Where of course, there was a lot of trash talked about the Hubers and about about their approach and everything. But in the end, you know, Tommy Caldwell has placed bolts on Repel on right. variations on Mescalito to be able to send that thing. And nobody's going to going to be able to say much except for that was the most badass big wall climb ever put up when he right. does it. Right. Because it's just it just comes down to the fact that like El Cap is not a good ground up free climbing destination. It's no. It's very, very blank. It's very hard to find a free climbable way up there. The chances of you going ground up and free climbing something at the 513 or 514 level are, you know, next to none. You know, Leo Holding tried it. Right. I actually went up with him on one of his first attempts on the Prophet. And, you know, he tried. He put in amazing effort and Mm -hmm. tried to, like, force this line, you know, ground up eventually. He he hiked to the top and threw off ropes and, and realized he was going the wrong way. And he found the way, and eventually, right. you know, the the prophet was born. I mean, I saw that film that was put out with those guys, and yeah, I mean, they they kind of like stuck to their guns, 
until it just sort of became absurd. Exactly. And they realized that and said, all right, well, let's dial it back a teeny bit, but we're still going to do it in the best style we think is possible. But we want to give ourselves a chance. I mean, we all want to succeed. And at some point, you know, there's going to be compromises along the way, possibly, especially on El Capitan. Well, and it's not even like, it's not even like compromises in the greater scheme of things, but you find the level of challenge that you're comfortable with. And yeah. in the end, I mean, a guy like Leo is still so far beyond us all where we can, you know, it's very difficult to find any sort of reproach with his tactics totally. because he stuck to his guns far beyond what most people would end up doing. Oh, yeah. No, it was admirable. Yeah, totally admirable. It was it was a bit foolhardy. It was also right. horrifying, actually, playing him up there, you oh, know. I can imagine. He, like, took, like, a friggin' 60-foot whipper and, like, he was using double ropes and one of the, the rope that he whipped on was, like, core shot halfway through after the whipper and I was like oh my god like that cut you would have taken like a hundred foot whipper and you know and it was his hat yeah oh yeah it was a horror show dude no no, his hat stays on at all times yeah yeah Yeah, you gotta look good the only clown's good as you look so let's go back a minute so you're you're showing up in the valley what are you doing to get by I mean did you end up working for Uh, for Yosar or did you end up eventually eventually but when I first showed up I was I was pretty broke I was I I actually I was doing a lot of scrounging I'd go to the pizza deck Mm -hmm. and uh, you know wait till like somebody left like a pizza and you know jump on that were your parents proud of you as hippies um, they were, you know, well, my <laughs> parents like, yeah. were not, yeah, they were, they were psyched for, they were, my parents were, here's the thing, my parents were supportive, but they had also, you know, once they'd had us, they kind of, some of the harsh reality set in, they did have to actually get jobs and stuff. Uh-huh. My dad, you know, became a carpenter, my mom became a school teacher, and so, you know, they had to work, and so they were a little bit, you know, they had that work ethic at that point, right. they become a little more middle class, and so they were, they were supportive, but also a little bit like, oh my God, you're living in your truck, and Yosemite, like, how long is this going to last? Right. You know, and I mean, we did send you to college. Like, yeah, dude. yeah, they were. It right. was. They were definitely. They were supportive, but a little. You know, a little bit like, oh boy, like where's this going? That's what parents should do, though. Yeah, no, they were. That's uh, probably a lot better than just them saying, "All right, like, good yeah, for you." Woo. Yeah, yeah, like just like scrounging pizza, <laughs> you know, walk around the valley looking for like cans to uh-huh. recycle uh-huh. for like a couple. So bucks. you were that guy. I was that guy for nice. like about a year or two. I was like full dirt bag. And then um, one day I was out climbing with my buddy and he was on search and rescue and his pager went off and he's all, oh, you should come on this rescue with me. And I'm next thing, next thing I know, I'm in a helicopter and I'm flying up to the gorge in between upper and lower falls to do uh-huh. a uh, body recovery. Oh God. That was like, suddenly I was like on this rescue just because of who I knew, I knew. And I did that and then they're like, oh yeah, you know, if you want, you could like carry a pager, you know? And so I was like, sure. And I, so I was carrying a pager, but I was still just kind of hiding in the boulders and right. And, so, uh, just to kind of explain this, there's, yeah. there's official Yosar guys, Yosemite mm-hmm. Rescue, and but a lot of times they need support, not even technical rescue, but you guys need to carry loads, and you just they need bodies anything. and people to be there. And yeah. so, a lot of times that's just climbers that are in the valley. It, yeah, it, yeah, it can be. Well, we used to be. Now, nowadays, it's like all become a lot more official, and there's, right. you know, it's like when I was there, it was a little more of like the Wild West. As far as I was, yeah. yeah, it was like, oh, like we need bodies, like, and they just. I mean, there was a time when they literally just go to camp for and just like grab who was ever whoever that was, was there. Yeah, that's the mythological back in the day. Back in the day, Bridwell, yeah. you know, right. started uh, search and rescue and. But, you know, then during that time, I just like ended up on this rescue, and then I ended up mm. being able to be a part of that, and I ended up living eventually in the rescue site for five years, and that right. was really, that was how, that was my first sponsorship in a sense, because 
it was like I had a bivy in the valley. Mm-hmm. I was able to make a little bit bit of cash by working occasionally, mm-hmm. and uh, and I got a you know I just I got to climb with some you know some of the of the best climbers you know in in, in the country during that time. I really so who out. was who was sort of around in terms of that? Well, you know, like I said, I, I got to you know I got to go up on Leo with his project and see what right. he was doing. Um, got a speed climb with Dean Potter, who's incredibly bold and badass climber, and. Ammon McNeely, you know, I got to do mm-hmm. my first uh, El Cap in a day route with him, and he went on to get all of the speed records on El Cap practically. You know, he's got like more speed records on El Cap than anybody, more in a day ascents. And I got to kind of rub shoulders with the uh, Hubers and see what they're doing. I got inspired by all those folks. I also, I also was like, got inspired. I was like, man, that's the life to be a professional climber. I was like, that would be awesome. Like, how could I somehow pull that off for uh-huh. myself? You know, that was definitely something in the back of my head when seeing all those guys who were like, they're nice, like, Gore-Tex jackets, you know, like, right. pulling them out of the plastic bag. They're like, this one's got a rip in it. And then you just rip the next new one out of a plastic bag, and then the check comes in the mail. Right. And it was like, you know, I didn't maybe understand exactly what it was like to be a pro, but what I saw was that it looked pretty awesome. So you're moving through this. You're you're in the SAR site now. Yeah. And you're getting paid for rescues. Yep. And you're kind of working with some of these guys that are professionals. Exactly. And yeah. uh, were you one of these guys that, that was getting, or was working occasionally for the Hubers? And I mean, I know they used to. I didn't do too much of that. I like, you know, I uh, I wasn't really into hauling loads. I was like, right. if I had free time, I was climbing. Okay. I wasn't, I was either doing rescue or I was climbing at that uh-huh. point. And then, you know, maybe in the winter, if I was like totally out of money, I would go and like one year I liked, I, I like, I slung some coffee at like a tennis tournament and you know, it was always some random odds and ends, like whatever job I could get, you know. And but it wasn't during the valley season. I was pretty much just either rescue or I was climbing, uh-huh. and uh-huh. I was mostly climbing. Well, that's that's one of the big shifts, because it, at least in my observation, and this was just my little narrow view, but yeah, it seemed like mostly nobody was climbing. In, yeah, in in our era, social scene. Yeah, it was a social scene, and. You know, there's always been this mythology that surrounds Yosemite. It still does. And a lot of the mythology or the mythologizing of the Yosemite scene and, you know, going back to the Stone Masters and even before that and everything else is like you get this impression that, you know, every day was someone, you know, doing some historic thing. Rad thing. And mostly it's people have described war as being, you know, you know, 95% boredom with 5% terror. Yeah. And it it feels like that. Like, mostly people are just, like, bumming around. You know, this is... There's an element of truth to that, I think, for, I think, to all of us, probably. I mean, you got to have rest days, and, you know, you have days where you just go out Mm -hmm. and do some cracking at the cookie or something. Right. it's, like, it's a... Yeah, well, I mean, that's all training. Yeah. But the other thing that's really interesting to me, I think, is that, in a lot of ways, if you really get sort of cynical about it, and I can be cynical about things, but, you know, there's almost, like, this mythologizing of, like depression and alcoholism and all these things that go on and yeah you know like the oldie the coat which became cobra oh yeah and actually as a question to you yes and, and to our listeners do they sell that shit anywhere but yosemite because i've never seen it anywhere else but no yosemite. i mean you'll Is see cobra it. malt liquor king cobra king cobra oh, i mean malt they liquor sell it in the ghetto you know really like, oh yeah sure if you're a gangster you drink King Cobra. Okay. Or if you're like a dirtbag rock climber, you drink King Cobra. Because I look, and I never see it anywhere but there. No, but and then there, it's well, it's cheaper than water in Yosemite right. Valley. It's right. like you're like, should I get a liter of water or should I get right. a, you know, 16-ounce freaking King Cobra? And I think that was like, there was an era where that was the cool thing was you, mm-hmm. you'd get your six-pack of King Cobra and you'd 
smoke a bunch of weed, drink a bunch of King Cobra, and talk about your rad wall climb. And, and that was kind of the cool thing to mm-hmm. do a little bit. But when I showed up, there was like, you know, there's, you know, still some smoking bulls in the, you know, in, in the boulders and all that. But it was like, there was also like, then you'd go bouldering or you'd right. go, or you'd go cragging or, right. you'd, you know, or then every once in a while you'd start cooking up some like bigger adventure. Like maybe a, let's go check out this first descent mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. one of these walls or let's, you know, go try to climb, you know, Eagle's Way in a day or whatever, you know, right. it's like something more adventurous. And so I don't know, there's an ebb and flow with it all, but it was a little, maybe a more, there's during my time, there right. was some. There were some driving forces that were serious about pushing it and about climbing and, and who were also pretty supportive and, and encouraging, I'd say. Like and, who? And even though like a lot of people talk trash about Potter, I have to say the dean was really encouraging to me and was really like, you know, you could break a record on a speed record on El Cap. You know, you just got to dial in your skills. And he really set me down. He showed me things like short fixing and some of the techniques that they use up there. And, uh, you know, in meeting Timmy O'Neill, Timmy was... Timmy was like a force, you know, and when he was in the valley, it was always like just a lot of good energy, a lot of laughter. And, you know, there's like guys like that were like kind of at the core. You know, honestly, one of the folks that we haven't touched on that uh, that I actually kind of, and someone who never climbed hardly at all, or if he climbed, climbed slower than anybody else on the planet was Chongo. Chongo was encouraging in his own way, and, and he was kind of like our, almost like the spiritual leader of the dirtbags back then. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody who I always kind of got a, a kick out of hanging out with and I found encouraging. And, and you know, he was literally just a homeless – I mean, Chongo is this homeless guy who lived in the valley and, you know, wrote this the Big Wall book at this the time. This famous tome. That, yeah. Right. There's it's like bigger one than the, in existence or something? Yeah, there's like 12 yeah. of them. It's oh, bigger, there's it's, 12. Uh, well, no, there's more than 12. He sold them. They were really? Like, oh, yeah, there's probably like 100 or 200 of them out there that he wow. sold. He would sell them for 100 bucks a piece. It was like bigger than the Bible. There was two chapters on carabiners. It was comedy. And he then he was like hitchhiking these walls, like settings like slow right, records. Right, he was famous for, yeah, hitchhiking. He was a huge character, but he was also like just a, you know, you could always just count on Chongo being in the valley and, and, and you could count on him for entertainment. And during those mm-hmm. during that downtime on those rest days, he was a good guy to hang out with. And, you know, he kept spirits high in his own way, even though he was a bit of a, a train wreck. And eventually, a lot of those guys started getting run out of the valley. Chongo got run out of the valley. There's, there was a changing tide eventually where it got harder and harder to be a dirtbag in the valley. Well, that, that, in a way, was another shift. It was. You know, it was in a terms shift. Of eras, yeah. Yeah, no, that was kind of the end of an era. And that was kind of like actually when I started like doing more expedition type stuff, I'd kind of gotten sponsored at that time and was not spending all of my time in the valley at that point. And I'm kind of glad actually just because it was a little bit sad. It was like. There was no longer, like, for a while there, there was, like, parking lot outside of Camp 4 where... Center of the universe. The center of, it was, like, our center of the universe where we'd all meet and, and like, it was kind of, you know, all the climbers would meet and hang out and talk about their adventures and, you know, or give each other beta or just whatever, just talk shit. And it was a lot of fun and, and you know, and it was, it created a sense of community and they basically got rid of that parking lot and really, you know, and they really started cracking down on, you know, anybody who was just hanging out and it, it made it... You know, it really disbanded that sense of community, and it was a, it was, it was a, it was a big bummer. You know, a lot of folks kind of just like went their separate ways. Also, I think there was at that point it was like, you know, the economic crisis hit, gas got expensive, and a lot of the dirtbags like just stopped driving to the valley. There was a an ebb where things got just a little bit sadder and a little more desperate, and there was just a few hardcore dirtbags holding it down mm-hmm. and. And there's still some folks showing up and doing amazing stuff, you mm-hmm. know, and some of the usual characters still holding it down. But it just was felt like when I, you know, when I would come, I just didn't feel that sense of 
community that for I'd say for about like six or seven years we really had. Right. It was a, it was really a good time for a while there. Right. The the, the what did you the monkeys the monkeys the yeah. rock monkeys yeah. which is what we called ourselves. And it's kind of, I, I you know I saw there was there's been some sort of essays and, and photo essays and stuff. Yeah. On that era and the rock monkeys and it it definitely harkened back to like that Stone Masters idea. There was yeah. this coalescence, you know, around the idea of breaking these these speed records or or doing this free climbing and um you know it, it's it's kind of cool because it, it became another era in in yosemite climbing yeah that sort of filled that gap that cuz it was sort of like i don't know like like said so the, the time that i was there just felt like this kind of middle period yeah it wasn't I mean? like it wasn't quite the iconic era that I happened to stumble into in a sense. It was yeah. just by, you know, just whatever, just like when I was born in sheer luck. And I was, I was there when a, a, in a time when new stuff was happening and right. like, you know, wh- where the, the speed climbing thing was really kind of getting, uh, getting popularized and pushed and the free climbing thing was starting to explode and, and the, and the community was really tight during that time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and rock monkeys is just catchy. And right. so, you know, all that stuff just added up to it kind of being maybe a, kind of an iconic, uh, period of time in the valley and I, I feel really i feel thankful to have like you know had that time in the valley because it was it was something you know it's like uh, those were the good old days <laughs> so let me talk about that so you're in the valley and you've been on sar now and you're sort of making it all work yeah and so how did you move into becoming this more professional climber like, uh, how did that work out? Well, it kind of happened gradually. So, I mean, you know, I started meeting people, you know, because it's like it is a bastion of climbing, you know, in, in California or in, in the world for that matter. And so I started meeting folks and, who had connections and stuff. And, you know, like, one of the first guys that really got me got me my first sponsor was uh, Bullwinkle or Dean Fidelman, who does the uh, Stone Nudes calendar, and uh, which is amazing. You should definitely check that out. Yeah. I want to tell you that the very first Stone Nudes calendar... I actually knew six or seven of the women that were in that stone yeah. con because he was climbing in the gym in Santa Monica. Totally. So it was awesome. So no, I looked totally. it up. I was like, oh, I was wondering what she looked like naked. Yeah. No, and yeah, her, no, I, and yeah, her, and, and her, her, and her, and, and you're her. like, oh, they're beautiful. And my girlfriend. Yeah, I dated the cover girl of the of the first calendar. Well yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Anyway, so yeah. yeah, so he's he's somebody that is sort of, what was his connection? Well, he was, he, I mean, he was good friends with Charles Cole, and Charles uh-huh. Cole, uh, you know, who at, was- At uh, 510. At 510. Charles Cole started 510, and so he's like, oh, you know, he was like, oh, do you need some climbing shoes? And I was like, oh, dude, like, do I need climbing shoes? You know, because I was just constantly blowing through them. I was broke all the time, and- gave me this pair of climbing shoes and I was like, dude, you wouldn't have any more of those climbing shoes, would you? And he's all, oh, let me call Charles. Let me see what I can do. Right. And he's all, Charles, you know, there's this dirt bag in the valley and he's pretty rad and you need to give him shoes. Like, and that's uh-huh. kind of how it went down. And then, you know, it was like, next thing you know, I'm getting, you know, I've got like a number I can call and then they send me shoes. And that was my first sponsor. And so I kind of, I was like, oh, well, then I kind of got in my head. Oh, maybe you can just, you can like meet these people and you can ask and, you know, and. And maybe they'll give you stuff, you know. And uh, you were just I, waiting for them up in your cave. Yeah, I was to show like, up. I was, I'm sure if I just, do, you know, if like, I just sit here in this cave. Yeah, they'll find I meditate me. on it. Um, oh, sponsor me. Yeah, but I, I put myself out there. I right. also, I also, I started to, you know, like I, I, I broke the the, the record on the uh, the shield with Chris McNamara. Uh-huh. Put up some some free climbs, uh, you know, on the Sentinel, and you know, I was getting a little bit of press from climbing sure. and. And I uh, and I started to write about my adventures for Climbing Magazine, mm-hmm. and so I started to have a, I started to get a little bit of a profile, you know. Right. And then so 
that gave me a way to be like, hey, you know, I'm getting a little bit of attention. You know, it'd be awesome if you could hook me up with a rope or if you can. And so it just started with just gear and and no money. And then eventually I met Singer, who I would go on my first um, alpine climbing expedition with. Jason Singer Smith, mm-hmm. who's a legendary character, and mm-hmm. uh, at the time was just a you know badass wall climber and free climber, and uh, you know one of the key climbers during that time, and one of my good buddies who I climb with a lot. And anyways, he was working at the North Face, sponsored by the North Face, and that was kind of how I got introduced to that whole North Face scene. And eventually, you know, I just uh, I met all those folks, and I was I was real passionate, and I was out there, and I was pushing it as hard as I could all the time. Right, and I had a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of desire. And, right. uh, and they eventually kind of saw that and they started to, you know, give me some jackets and stuff like that. And one thing led to another. And now here I am, you know, 10 years later and I'm been, uh, you know, working with the North Face for a lot of years now. I've been really fortunate to get to travel the world and, and do a lot of really cool expeditions, climb with a lot of amazing climbers mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and get, and get paid. So, right. um, yeah, I, I, uh, somehow pulled it off. Well, it's interesting because I, I think a lot of sort of lay climbers, like myself included, it's kind of this mystery of, well, how does that all happen? Yeah. And in my observations for you, I mean, it was, it's such this force of personality. Yeah. And like you just said, your desire and that you were, you were willing to put yourself out there. You were willing to ask, you were willing to do, it sounds cliche, but it's sort of do whatever it takes. To a certain extent. I mean, it was like, that was my dream. And I was just, you know what I mean? When you have a dream, then you, you, I wanted to get paid to rock climb. Right. And a lot, and there's a certain, Almost like I think there, especially in the valley, there was this kind of there's a backlash to that. There was it was that was a, would be a very taboo or uncool thing to say to be like I want to be a sponsored climber. Right. You know, it's almost right. like oh, you're just a sellout. It's not just the valley. It's, sellout it's, it's corporate the sport in general. Yeah. Corporate sellout, all that. You know, but it's like I found that a lot of those people actually, if they really were honest, would would love to be sponsored themselves. Sure. Right. And uh, you know, and a few people just are are very. Pure and, and you know, and I respect that. You know, not I. I, I respect the, the those climbers that don't have sponsors that have jobs and they come out and some of them climb way harder than I do and I think it's really cool. You know, but but you know, there's there's a place for all that and it's like there's got to be people who are able to communicate that passion mm-hmm. and uh, you know who who are kind of ambassadors to the sport mm-hmm. in a sense and who you know can weave a good tale and who can get people psyched and that's what I try to be and I try to pass on that psych and pass on that passion a little bit and that's kind of. You know, that's kind of my main job as a sponsored climber in a sense, not to go out and climb the ratted stuff because that was never really my deal. I did some pretty, you know, some pretty rad stuff. I was right. like one of the rad guys in the valley. I was never the raddest dude. Right. But I had a lot of passion and I had a good ability to tell my story and mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, hopefully get people psyched and, and to, you know, just like spread that, that fun. And so I think that's a, that's kind of where I had value as a professional, I guess. Well, I think that's really actually enlightening to me to hear you say that because I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of what sponsorship means to a company. And the fact is, is that the climbing really well is a part of it. Yeah. But that's what most people think is the most important part looking from the outside in. And I've always tried to tell people, listen, no, if, if you're like a really awesome climber, but you're a total dick. Yeah. That's not valuable to a company. No. Unless you're the, I mean, unless, unless you're, you're the, the greatest. raddest climber. Yeah. But even like, you know, Chris Sharma is not a dick. No. He's a really nice guy. He's yeah, a great Tom ambassador. Is a really nice guy. And so the best of the best happen to be decent people. Usually. And, and you might end up, if you were the greatest, you might end up, you know, like some of these basketball players or whatever that are total assholes. 
it might be even be part of your vibe that they're selling. Like you're so yeah. great that you can't even, you know, like Miles Davis k- turns his back on the crowd because they don't get him. Yeah, but and that's fine because we all sit there and go, "Wow, he's so great. He turns his back on us. It's amazing." But the truth is, is they they want people that are like you just said that can tell a good story and be enthusiastic and you know you have to be able to climb well don't yeah. get me wrong and yeah of and, course and, and, and you can't you can't i mean it, there's an element of that you, yeah you, know, you want to be someone who's out there doing stuff that's meaningful in the sport hopefully but and, and it's and it's also another sort of shift i've seen in my climbing career of that of like it, it was once just your numbers and yeah like if you're a rad climber but then you know people like patagonia and like the north face kind of realized you know, if, if if this guy's a dick to everybody at the crags, like, that's not really good for us. No. You know? And no. if people don't like him or her, it's, it, yeah, we don't really care if it's 13B or yeah. 14A or whatever. We're, nah, we're good. Eh. If you're imaginative, you can tell a good story. You're, you know, you're imaginative with, with the, the trips you've gone on. Yeah, exactly. So. It's like what we've lost a lot maybe in the sport is that sense of adventure mm-hmm. and that sense of, you know, really getting out there and finding like, you know, new unexplored places mm-hmm. and, you know, putting up crazy first ascents, you know, and pushing it like kind of in an adventurous way um, is something that not a lot of people are doing. And it's, and it's, but it's also very compelling, I think, right. to, to the general public. Right. Because you bring back the story. It's not just about you and this hard climb. It's mm-hmm. about the, the place that you go, how beautiful it is, and also all the people that you meet, the cultural experiences right. that you have there, you know, it's like you bring back this great story. Mm-hmm. And that that's really, uh, you know, the the value. I mean, you know, for those like those hungry climbers out there and maybe you're not the raddest guy out there, but, you know, you have like like some of the top passion, let's say, in the sport, you know, right. and you really want to you're really well, trying to make it work. Yeah. Know. Imagination. And you're mm-hmm. creative. And and, uh, you know, well, then that's, you know, that there's a there's there's value in that, mm-hmm. I think. And there's value in that to to companies out there who are trying to inspire people and. And show people rad stuff, and to associate that, you know, with their with their gear. And it seems like you've moved into a sort of era in your career where, and I talked to you about this earlier, like yeah. of being a guy who's, you know, you're in production, um, you're in shooting, shooting video. You've become kind of this sort of guy with many hats. Yeah. Not just the climbing and things, but now on the other side of of sort of the storytelling. Totally. And you're making music. Climbing is a creative process for me, mm-hmm. and it's it's all. I'm a very creative person, and so that's why I love making music, and that's why you know I got into this filmmaking thing, and I, I absolutely love it. I you know I love creating a story. That's why you know that's why I loved writing for so many years, and still do. Is 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 that you know it's a way of creating something that lives beyond you, that will live on after you die, mm-hmm. hopefully, in a sense. Maybe when I die, someone will pick up an old ratty issue of climbing and get a laugh. And I, right. you know, I, I like that thought or they'll, or they'll, they'll repeat you, one of my climbs and they'll, they'll YouTube the spirit. Bear yeah. 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 Climb. They'll see, they'll see uh boogie to you poop and they will definitely get a laugh. That will definitely. If anybody has not seen, is that what it's uh, uh, out there as boogie, uh, to, boogie you to you poop or also if you Google, um, what is it? Uh, hungover rock climber. Well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and post it on the website. I'll yeah. Yeah. To it, no, so. yeah. 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 You don't want to, this is maybe, uh, for sure, Cedar's finest filmmaking moment, and perhaps <laughs> one of the finest in all climbing history. Yeah, Peter Mortimer, who's Sender Films, mm-hmm. uh, said it was the best climbing film ever made. And yeah. who am I to argue with? <laughs> exactly, him? he knows what he's yeah, talking about. It's uh, it's just it's pure comedy. Yeah, yeah, you can't beat that. But yeah, no. But back, to, it's about being creative, and it's about 
having fun and it's about making some money too, you know, cause you got to eat. And so that became like right. another, um, that became yeah, another, deep. yeah, that became another income source for me is like creating these little films and, you know, delivering them to some of my sponsors for a little mm-hmm. additional income. And, and, uh, yeah, it's a cool way to put your story well, out there. That's, you know, one of the things too, about quote unquote climbing sponsorship is, you know, unless you are the Sharma or, you know, it's like you have to find all your avenues. Oh yeah. To make the ends meet, they're not just signing checks for hundreds of thousands of dollars over no. to yeah. So it's like adding these little elements to to help promote the brand Supplement or whatever. Your else. Income. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this: We're uh, I want to wrap this up cool. a little bit. So you're now married. Yeah. You're living in Boulder. You own a townhouse. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk about just what do you think in terms of not just climbing, but who you are as sort of a person now. What did you take away from this this era in Yosemite, these five years or this seven years or eight years or whatever it happened to be? Because well, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a thing that you did that I think a lot of cl- climbers dream about or yeah. they think that's the ultimate. The Yosemite dirtbag in a lot of ways is the mythological ultimate thing in, in the United States, you know? So yeah. yeah. So what do what do you what do you think? Well, I Can think you... it is uh, in a sense. It's like well, Yosemite Valley is the most iconic climbing area possibly in the world. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like you really are. You're walking kind of in the shadows of giants in more ways than one. You know, and it it teaches you humility. It teaches you creativity. It teaches you to be you know to like minimalism it teaches you to you know to survive on very little being a dirtbag just i think is an invaluable skill it teaches you now for me it teaches me to appreciate all the creature comforts that i have like Mm -hmm. even now you know sometimes i'm just kicking back in my condo and i'm watching cable tv and i kind of have to laugh you know what i mean i'm like sneaking in the mountain bar or mountain room bar to watch tv yeah i'd be like yeah yeah, or then i'd be like oh it's raining i'm just gonna hang out until then i'm gonna go into my cave my dark wet cave and try to sleep and you know there's it's like it's, sure, it's romanticized, but it's mm-hmm. also it's like there's like your dark moments in Yosemite Valley being a dirtbag. You know, mm-hmm. don't let me like like talk it up too much. But uh, it's gave my life a lot of like uh, perspective, I'd say, and uh, it makes me really you know I'm really thankful to have gotten where I've gotten with it. And uh, you know, but I you know honestly I, I I miss it a little bit, and I'm just like I'm gonna get back the summer and hang out with one of my buddies who's still kind of doing it, my buddy Lucho, who I was just in Malaysia with, and I'm just gonna dirtbag around with him a little bit because it's uh, slumming. Yeah, dude, it's, it's, there's something about it that's good for, it's good for the soul to get in the dirt and live simply, you know, there's, it really is, it's uh, therapeutic and hopefully you're just in the dirt and you're, you're, you're eating food and you're climbing and you're tired and you go to sleep. Maybe you read a book or something and it's life is simple for a minute. And, uh, nowadays for me, that's very necessary because, you know, life's more complicated now. I've got like to pay a mortgage and I've got a wife and you know, and it's from it. And, and a she, pug. I got a pug, a very cute pug. <laughs> and you could probably find him online too. Right on. Gus the pug. All right. Well, thanks, Cedar. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. It was sort of behind the mask a little bit. Yeah. To find out what, what was going through your head back in those days and continues to go through your head. Yeah. No, I, I hopefully have a lot of, of good adventures to come. You know, I'm still psyched to get out there and push it. No, and you're explore. done. I, I might be done. You got a mortgage. Forget oh, it. Fucked. Oh, no. Right we'll on. We'll see, yeah. Hopefully Thanks not. a lot, Cedar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Oh, 
thank Cedar Wright for coming on the show, and I want to thank everybody for listening. Without you guys, I'm just pissing into the wind. I also want to remind you to check out the website, anormalcast.com. Click over to defiantbean.com and order some coffee. While you're at the website, also click on the Help Out tab. It's a bunch of stuff you can do to keep this thing alive. Some of it's easy, like liking us on Facebook. And the main thing is, is please just tell your friends, spread the word, get more people listening. That would be great for me. Finally, you can contact me at chris at enormalcast.com. Let me know what you're thinking. Good, bad, ugly, whatever you want to say. And come back for episode 14. And be safe out there. This is about the time of the summer where you're back into the routine. And routines are dangerous. Make sure you really are sorting out your signals and make sure you're checking each other's knots. All right, we'll see you next time. No, man, nothing is fucked here. Nothing is fucked. No, man. The goddamn plane has crashed into the mountain. No, man, come on. Who are you going to believe? Those guys are... We dropped off the damn money. We? Why? The royal we, you know, the editorial...